Before we get started this week, we'd just like to ask you for some feedback. Please feedback. We love hearing from you. It makes our days and also helps shape the podcast. So we would love if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is find us on iTunes and you can leave a review right there. Or send us an email at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram and just start like adding us <laughs> whatever you want. It's yes. To you. Indeed. <laughs> Madeline's like, on board. Grace is talking a lot. I should say so. I'm not forcing her to do this. She likes it. No, I just was like, oh no, I'm just sitting here silently without contributing. Anyways. Okay, please let us know what you think. And now the episode. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. Rereading all our favorite YA fantasy classics, one book at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually don't state the purpose of the podcast up front, but we've had some confusion from people (laughs) about what exactly it's about who haven't listened to our intro, which is totally fine. But yes, this is young adult fantasy and it has a nostalgic bend. And we Um, enjoy discussing... How truly wide a category young adult fantasy really is. And how young adult really means all ages. Mm -hmm. And how you benefit at those different ages. All right. Not to get too preachy teachy. We're going to write a book. (laughs) A book about reading books. (laughs) Yes. No, it's going to be a graduate thesis. I just, I got my JD. I'm a. Going back. Got accredited as an attorney. Now I'm going to graduate school. Well, I felt like it was important to restate our mission ahead of this episode because the book that we're covering is a little bit different from what we've been doing. Um, It is The Voyage of the Basset by James C. Christensen with Renwick St. James and Alan Dean Foster. And I think it's important to mention all of their names because this is the first time where the leading author on a work we're covering didn't actually write the book that we read. Um, And we can talk about this a little bit more as we go on through the episode, but this is basically an art book. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a fantasy art book, uh, but an art book nonetheless. It's one that was really important to us as kids. Yes, Um, We loved at first just flipping through it and looking at the images and then reading it as we got older. Mm -hmm. So we definitely grew with it, I think. Yes, definitely. This book came out in 1996 when I was nine and Madeline was six. And Patrick was three. And our little brother, who is not on this podcast, but we mentioned him. In case the Patrick fans out there are wondering, you may remember him from the uh, Zell episode. Yeah, is he that said when he, something in German he came for, on for us. one line in yeah. German. Madeline, would you like to describe the cover and the way that this book was marketed for this edition? Yes. It's a big book um, since it is an art picture book. Um, it's it's like a foot by foot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> waving it around at Grace. It is enormous. Yeah, it's a really big book. Um, the art on the cover is beautiful. It looks very, um, both very clean because it's there's like the beautiful art drawings on and then superimposed on a totally white background. Um, 
it kind of looks like it's a floating. crest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with pretty much all the characters depicted on either the back or front or both, um, which is really, really cool. Um, they have the credendo vides, the Latin at the top too, which really conveys like, I don't know. I'm a big fan, big fan. Okay. Good job marketing. Up. Usually we just tear the book apart visually, but this one I really, really like. It definitely compels you to read it. Yes. So much. Yes. And to buy it. Uh-huh. Um, and our little, this is the definitely the most expensive book that we've covered. I remember feeling very fancy owning it as a child, even though, it, you know, it has the price tag and it, it says $30 and this was uh-huh. $1996, $30. Yeah, now it'd be $50. Um, we, for a few of these episodes, we've had to buy used copies of the but books Grace that we've found covered. this one. I spent two hours going through every book box in our mom's garage to find this. I encountered some of the most thrilling spiders I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Grace. <laughs> and Madeline was very happy she wasn't there. Grace was so, like, she just told me this story. Like, actually, I don't want to tell you about these spiders. You don't want to know. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> they were so bad. So I went on an adventure of my own to uncover this book. and It's true. She stayed alone at her mom's house, and she was really spooked. So, Madeline, would you like to read the blurb? Professor Aisling's Journey. Credendo Vides, by believing one sees. Aboard the HMS Beagle, Charles Darwin traveled to the ends of the world, discovered his theory of evolution, and sailed into history. Aboard the HMS Bassett, Professor Algernon Aisling, his daughters, and their crew of dwarves and gremlins sail to a place just a little left of reality to preserve imagination. Nice. So, very brief plot summary. Professor Aisling and his daughters, as Madeline mentioned, um, are a family living in Victorian-era England. Professor Aisling is grumpy and unfulfilled in his job at the university. Well, he he loves his job. He just hates... He like, hates the, everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> he colleagues. hates the other academics at the university. They don't take him seriously. They don't think that the study of mythology and fantasy is important, and they want to stamp out all folk tales forever. Very dramatic. There's a hilarious picture at the front of a puffed up man, Bill Dwallow. Yeah. That's his uh, enemy's name. Like, um, if I can't measure it, right. it's not worth, it's not science. Yeah, although it looks in that picture like he's engaging in some pretty questionable um, practices unquote, of his own. Science. <laughs> well, like, he's measuring his own skull. And isn't that, pra- what's that practice called? That the size of the skull? I don't know, but it's, it's horrible. It's pseudoscience. And yeah, just like deeply racist and all kinds of awful stuff. Anyway, they are going on a walk one night and a beautiful ship is in front of them in the harbor. Suddenly they board the ship and they're greeted by a group of dwarves who say, this is the HMS Bassett and it's here for you and it's time for you to go on your journey. And they travel into a fantasy realm an unnamed and unknowable sort of world of imagination that encompasses all myths and fairy tales and folklore that a British professor might be concerned with um, at that time. 
And as they go on their travels, they meet the fairy king and queen and they tell Professor Aisling that his mission is to keep the link between the two worlds, between our reality and the fantasy realm open. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes through some stuff, some inner struggles. He thinks that he needs to capture the creatures that he meets and bring them back to England in order to prove that anything magical exists. But he ultimately has a reckoning with himself and realizes that he's just being super colonialist and awful. And then mm-hmm. he needs to let these creatures live fight, their fight lives the white British man within you. Yep, <laughs> exactly. There's a whole lot of that that yeah. comes out from time to time. And throughout this process, his daughters also grow into themselves. Miranda becomes, she's the skeptic of the group. She's 16. She's the scully. She, yep, she's the scully. And she starts to accept magic in various forms and recognize that there is value in fantasy and in imagining things. And she gets a red, red dress. She gets a gorgeous dress and calls a unicorn. Uh, The youngest daughter, Cassandra, pretty much is just along for the ride. um, She loves it. And is enjoying every creature that she meets and really befriending everyone she comes across. And halfway through the book, she starts wearing... Um, dwarven attire, which yields some wonderful illustrations. Yeah, the of pictures her, of a little girl like, with long blonde hair and, and dwarf yeah. costumes yeah. Are, are just so much fun. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, really, I don't think there's too much else we have to say. It's it's very basic. Mm-hmm. It, like I said, is a vehicle for the artwork. Um, they complete their journey. They they come back home and. Then we get a little epilogue that kind of ties up the rest of the, the three of the family's lives, mm-hmm. the Aislings. Um, And that's that. Just to give you a little bit of a context for why this book exists. Um, it's a, not a sequel exactly, but it builds off of the first book that James C. Christensen released called A Journey of the Imagination. I can't remember that name. It's so dull. It came out in 1994. A Journey of the Imagination. Uh, That came out two years prior. Then this really fleshed out the characters from that book. That was more, it had gorgeous paintings and then also the little kind of more sketchy pieces that accompany the full-scale paintings. Um, And there were all of the same characters for the most part, but they Mm. just didn't have a backbone of a story behind them. So then James E. Christensen paired up with two other writers, um, two writers. He's not a writer. He's not a writer. No. Yeah. Um, He's not classified as one anywhere that I uh, read about him doing my research to create this. And then in the years after other authors wrote works that expand on this universe. Um, we had one, and I don't know if you remember reading it. It was by Tanith Lee, and it was called Islands in the Sky. And I think that came out in, like, 98 oh. or 99. Yeah, so this is kind of the happy medium between those books, which cool. were those were full novels. I don't think they even had illustrations. Um, and it didn't have anything to do with James C. Christensen. And then just the pure art that came before. That's really cool. Okay, so let's talk about why we're covering this book, why it's important to us, and why we think it's important for other people. Would you like to go first? Okay. So I'm a little sick, so I sound a little spaced out and floaty, just FYI. I used to just stare at the art in this book. I read it. I mean, I read it over and over again. But then once I knew the story super well, I would just go back and kind of look at the pictures. Um, 
Me and Patrick used to do this thing. I can't remember if you would do it with us or if it was just that so like I would do it with Patrick when he was really young. Um, we would open really beautiful picture books like I Spies or um, that one with all the mazes in it. Um, the, mm. those beautifully illustrated mazes and we do it with this book too where we would just like open to a landscape or some kind of adventurous looking setting and basically just like stare at it and talk our way through mm, mm-hmm. it and like an adventure in it and we yeah. wouldn't even really use um we wouldn't use like little people or anything like we didn't use any toys it was just we would open it up find an awesome picture and then just like hang out in and with the picture um and we did that a lot with this book because it has such rich and beautiful illustrations and like there's so much stuff to walk around in Mm -hmm. and just very ornate art style yeah yeah um Reading it, I also really enjoyed it because there were so many beautiful women in it. And I really loved just like beautiful women when I was a little girl. I just thought, and the women in this, they're very elegant and poised, beautiful women. So I always was just transfixed by them. And there's a picture of um, like an an older adult mermaid um, doing her like hair flowy thing across from a like young girl mermaid and the, it it's looks like her. yeah and who's like also got her arms up and she's trying to do the like mermaid pose and lady I, preening yeah and yeah. I always just remember looking at that picture and being like I just loved it so much um so the and I reading it this time too I was really struck by of course, how beautiful the art is. And then the kind of the way that the art style shifts around. Um, I think it's brilliant. Uh, I think it's really, really cool. And, you know, it's a very simple story um, with a simple lesson. But uh, I think it's just so worth getting a hold of it and reading it. Um, if for no other reason, than it's just the art is so beautiful. It is, yeah. I think it's one of the more beautiful Uh, worlds that I've seen especially when it comes to fantasy art Mm -hmm. I mean I although my favorites are always going to be the Tolkien artists right um but that went the other way around because they had the story and then the art came after instead of like this with the art first and then right exactly which is an interesting approach Uh to a book and I think it's I think it's telling at at different points that the art came first um it really there are moments okay so as a, as a child, I thought that this book was, um, that the writing was nearly as good as the art. And I don't want to be too critical, but re- rereading it, I noticed how often the writing fails. Um, yeah, the writing is not... It's, it's actually pretty awkward at times. It jumps from scene to scene. Yes. And then awkwardly shoehorns in, oh, and now all these new characters are on the Basset, and here's what they're doing, but... Okay, wait, the hero's going to go do something, so jumping off to that. Um, and I, okay, one I, reason well, why I, also, I think... Well, I also, I felt like it could have been spaced better, like the layout yeah. could have been better with the art and the 
writing because obviously when you turn a page, mm-hmm. what you see are the pictures, and the pictures were were too far ahead of yes, the, the pictures story. are ahead a of lot. the text in many different yeah. places, mm-hmm. which also bothered me as a child because that's the kind of thing I used to obsess over to no end. Well, um, yeah, as a child, it was frustrating because it was like, well, you haven't. You Come know. on, guys. Yeah. I don't know. You're giving because, it away. And I was very busy with trying to make my own picture books at the time. Yeah. So I was very concerned with matching art to text. And it, this book has a lot of problems with that. Um, the reason why I think it's valuable to reread as an adult, um, first of all, I think we don't have children. If any of our listeners do, I would highly recommend that you read this with your kids. I think it's a great oh way gosh, to so, yes. introduce them to more complex fantasy ideas and also start getting them a grounding in different mythologies, particularly Greek mythology. There are many well-known but but intriguing Greek mythological figures in this book. Um, although they're neutered versions of well, Greek myths. They're, they're child-appropriate versions. But even more than that, they lose their malice within the first five minutes of oh, encountering you mean, oh, the yes, humans. Yes, for sure. Um, the Minotaur is just really lonely, and he wants people to be around. Uh, and same thing with Medusa. She is actually very concerned about killing living things. Mm-hmm. I just listened to... The Greek the myth. other podcast that we reference all the time. Yeah, of myths <laughs> it does and seem legends. To be concurrent with ours in these weird ways. Um, and he, uh, I yeah, I love his podcast. And he went through um, and did the Medusa myth. And yes, that came out. God, it's so brutal and it so is. sad. Just how much the Medusa is just abused and mistreated, and how she was not in any way, shape, or form evil when she had this done to her. Um, you know. So I kept recalling that while I was reading this mm-hmm. and being like, right, like she's just a person. <laughs> yeah. No, and I appreciate that. And we've covered so many different fractured fairy tales and things of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, we are definitely interested in a retelling of classic stories. But what just frustrated me on this rereading is that they're all so predictable in the way that they are up oh, they just want to be friends with these right, humans yeah. the harpies are probably the most ridiculous because harpies are horrible they are truly um, repulsive yeah and they're not interested in working within human society mm-hmm. or any kind of order um so i i like the i like the idea of them becoming the cooks on the ship and the paintings That's are really charming. cute and yeah, yeah it it's it's nice to think about but it's such a big departure from any other harpies story that I've ever yeah, read. I guess that even in even the version of the harpies, um, which I I think the version Stormwings I was from of Stormwings, um, yeah. Emperor Mage, they're still very off-putting. They're really frightening. Their even, job, even like, though some of them can be at least friendly, but they literally their sustenance is fear. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, there's no way for them to ever truly integrate into right. a human society. And they're not interested in that. They have their own monarchs. They have their mm-hmm. own society. I Anyways. Did, I, on the subject, of, well, okay, let's talk more about the the creatures and the way they're realized in this book in a little bit. I, I want to finish saying um, that I, I think that, like I said, really a valuable way for kids and parents to connect over um, fantasy stories is to look at this book together or mm-hmm. read it together. The kids can just look at it. Um, there are there are some bare chests in it, but they don't have nipples, so I don't think 
there's anything too objectionable. Although I did learn that there was some controversy surrounding the book in some school libraries that didn't want to display it. Oh, because um, of the, the because they chests? thought that the the women were too yeah suggestive. But I think they're happen. I think they're very I mean, sure sexualized, and I did think about that, but I I think they're very like it's like classical figure drawing they are mm-hmm. not right. obscene in right any way, yeah shape, it's or form. they're similar to seeing a marble statue yeah. in a museum yeah um no i i totally agree and that's really what all the women look like which i also want to talk more about later um what i will let me uh just say quickly that yeah. i actually didn't um i wasn't really annoyed by the neuteredness of it mm. because of like it felt organic within that story that they were telling mm-hmm. um because it did feel um much more framed towards children so i just yeah. kind of saw it as like part of that yeah the morality of this realm is interesting because there's it it is like creature based or species based um and the only evil characters are trolls i did kind of feel like there were other evil creatures implied, though. Like, like, like they said that they, the ogres that they met were really lovely oh, ones, but right. that less I forgot lovely about ogres, ones existed. But they're not in the book, other than the nice one. Right, but I kind of extrapolated from that and was like, oh, so obviously there are a lot of other nasty myths, but maybe they are, yeah. like, segregated from the nicer myths. Yeah, it it just seemed very like sweetness and light mm-hmm. followed the path that they took. Um, although when the trolls do show up, they're they're very upsetting. Um, they're very violent. They're violent. They are very violent. They're greedy. Um, they're into child marriage. Uh, Some sort of nasty business. With yeah, chills. they keep wanting to try to kidnap Cassandra, which I hated as a child and also hate as an adult. Um, yeah, it's jarring to have them show up when everything else is so light and fluffy. And then uh, they just keep r- trying to kidnap a little girl because their leader is obsessed with the way she looks. I mean, yeah, that's but I mean, that also felt very traditionally fairy tale to me, like a very. Yeah. I think well, but I think this is just part of the awkwardness of the writing. There are some real underlying, yeah, and there are some real underlying components of grim or um, gosh, I'm too tired. Or Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, um, even if some other mythologies have been kind of made nice, um, we still get those darker tones. Mm Uh, but what I was trying to say about the other reason why I think it's valuable, can I even remember? Um, I would like to. Oh, hi, Lauren. Hi, this is how I I do think that having a visual of different fantasy beings is. Um, And one that's not necessarily (laughs) the super popular, straightforward representation is really important. Um, And I really liked the way that, for example, the dwarf professors at the the College of, the Wonderful College of Magical Knowledge, is that what it's called? 
Yep, the wonderful College of Magical Knowledge. <laughs> wow, you said that fast. Straight up tongue twister. I'm not even going to try. Which just kept reminding me of the Unseen University from Discworld. Oh my gosh, uh, so much Terry Pratchett. Yeah. <laughs> so many Terry Pratchett All vibes. of it. Like, as soon as it got to the college, I was like... Yeah. <laughs> Did Terry Pratchett do a, do a collab <laughs> on this? Sneak in here, what's yeah, happening? Yeah, like I feel I'm in Discworld now. <laughs> yeah, that was that's that was my favorite part of the book. I'm yeah, reading, and you can also tell that it was the artist's favorite thing mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, because James C. Christensen's mark of his work is um, kind of oddball images. They're like specifically a floating fish and just like fish in general. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he really got to play with that vibe of his art and get away from the more classical, beautiful, flowing, pretty stuff Mm -hmm. once we're at the college. Yeah. Something else that's interesting about this is that you do get the fun book within a book because professor aisling's diary yeah. is shown i thought that was i thought that was nicely done with little sketches and notes that yeah. he has about the world around him that was kind um, of a fun like interplay between what's going on in the story and then like what he's writing in his notes yeah exactly to see his impressions and then it gives us that. a feeling when he's moving in a dark direction. direction yeah and he just starts talking about how notes. to build cages for the different um, beings that they're meeting, yeah. uh, whereas his daughters are just making friends and hanging out. Although Miranda mm-hmm. spends most of the time sewing, uh, somehow sewing on the same dress for the <laughs> entire train. <laughs> At one point, I yeah, was like, she's, how I, are you mending still? What, you're not using your dress, and yet she, it always she's not embroidering. Spending. She's just no, mending. she's just obsessively and worryingly sewing away at her hem. So Professor Aisling is repeatedly titled the leader of the journey, um, and he gets more bravado regarding that at different points of the book than others, because there technically is a captain of the ship, Captain Mm -hmm. Malachi, who knows a lot more about what should be happening and what's going on than anyone else, but he kind of gets usurped as the book goes on. They all know that Algernon has the quote-unquote special mission and mm-hmm. that like he real like he's what's driving the winter right it's his belief that allows them to continue yeah. moving forward because so it he guides is, the like, ship important. using a magical instrument called the winter lab yeah uh yeah so <laughs> that's all going on and then when he has a crisis of confidence they can't go anywhere yeah and they get stuck yeah. and the trolls catch up to them there is also in addition to the trolls, there is uh, almost a dragon battle in the book. There is a dragon, dragon marks. And it smokes one of the... Right. All the dragon does is destroy the troll leader and then cause the others to scatter. And since this is a really like traditional mythology-based mm-hmm. dragon, it was extremely wise mm-hmm. and big. I love... And the dragon's really cool. I love this really dragon the portrayal. Dragon. Yeah. The uh, paintings. I think we're just going to have to put a lot of a ton art of pictures up on, on our website. This will be on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, yeah. when the episode drops. Um, tons of gorgeous dragon paintings and sketches. There is also a dragon skull, which yeah. was in our last book, too. And yeah. it also seems to have some... Similar sinister properties. Although because certainly not to the same extent. No, n- as nothing, previous, nothing like Mauer's yeah. skull from The Hero and the Crown, episode 19. But I did think about parallels there because 
Algernon becomes obsessed with just yeah. holding it and looking mm-hmm. at it and it thinking about how he's going to bring power. proof back to his university. And in the end, he gives it away and realizes, oh, maybe I should just not deal with this thing. Yeah. It's not for me. Mm-hmm. Then the other, I guess I'm just kind of going through the markers that we typically look for. Let's just do badass lady meter. There's a lot of women in this book, although a lot of them are background ladies. They don't have lines. They're not involved. They're just in the paintings. But what was hard for me on rereading is that there's one body type for women. There's one skin color for women. Uh, That's what really frustrated me. I was like, these are all mythological, mostly like non-humans. Yeah. Why are they all white? Yeah. (laughs) I I just, I mean, again, artists, this is the works that the artists made, and then the story was made from that, but I was frustrated by that. I also need to tell you something that I think explains some of the whiteness, which is that James E. Christensen is Mormon and lives in Utah. Actually, he passed away last year. um, Okay. Last January. And he actually taught at Brigham Young University and wow. went there. He was quite Mormon. Wow. Um, okay. Devout. Okay. And I that think does that help that to explain influences it. some of, yeah, mm-hmm. some pretty clear markers of the art, um, which, yeah, I, w- I won't go into that in detail. I don't want to um, look down on any religion right now. Mm-hmm. That's not what our podcast is about, but I think there's clear ties there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I was just hoping for more variety there. And, and also, where are all the half-naked dudes in the background? No, exactly. It's all yeah. ladies. The whether only it's thing. Or, well, I guess the dwarves are, are all male, but they're completely covered up with clothes. No, but they're they're all, not they sexy. all have directorial, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, important roles. They have jobs and names. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, the only, like, sexy man that I could find was the elf king. Oberon. Yeah. Um, fairy king. The f- fairy king, I'm sorry. Um, and the only non-sexy women I could find were either um, Cassandra, who is a child, mm-hmm. and... The um, ogres. The ogres, yeah. yeah, which I did really love. The they were ogres, cool. obviously, yeah. yeah. And, and I was, that painting of... It's great. Um, Olaf's birthday party. Oh my gosh. Is yeah. probably my favorite in the book. I love book. Olaf so much. I spent a long time on that page remembering yes. how much I loved it and there's such a and nice... And it's because there is variety in that yeah. image where there's mm-hmm. different... There's a fairy there and there's also the ochre and there's... I think one of the goblins is in there and everyone's just sitting in this room and Olaf is so huge that he's hunched over but he's smiling and looking at his birthday presents. And that was probably my favorite... Um, bit of the writing when it said Mm -hmm. that he chose two cards out of the present of his deck of cards as his favorites Mm -hmm. to show other people and that was just so charming and so pleasant yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, overall I I did love that there were that there were a lot of women but they but sometimes it felt like they were just being pretty wallpaper no for sure when I was little I was entranced by them but now Mm -hmm. that I'm reading it as an adult woman it was very like Hmm. Yeah, but I felt the same way as as a child. Definitely, I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, all these lovely ladies! Yeah. I love them." Uh-huh. I I loved looking at Medusa's first 
her face head yeah. on mm-hmm. painting where her eyes are so gorgeous and the mm-hmm. snakes coiled around her head and the dryad is like this yeah. tan uh, golden blonde like teenage looking girl but mm-hmm. she's just so she's lovely so beautiful and they're all just like glowing with life and femininity mm-hmm. um and yeah <laughs> we we both appreciate the female form for sure mm-hmm. um and that was that was nice to look at too yeah. and it's funny because <laughs> I won't go too deep into this but I tend to notice more I notice beautiful women more than attractive men uh in art I don't know they're just they're more striking to well, me I mean and I think that art, this really serves them I think that art also prioritizes yes, them yeah but but I'm saying even I don't know even on like a tv show I'll tend to be like oh that show has so many beautiful ladies on it I mean I think like, it's oh, also really that the dudes in things like TV shows, it's like the women have to be beautiful, and they they put so much more effort into making the women look beautiful. Like that's yeah, just the I think standard. that's part of it. But I'm thinking specifically of shows where like everyone's hot. Okay, something like Friday Night Lights, which I know that I've you haven't seen. Um, but uh, maybe this book made me that way. <laughs> that's <laughs> all I'm trying to say. Okay. <laughs> So for Badass Lady Meter, we have a few options. Um, who do you think is the badassest lady? Oh, I think Cassandra, for sure. I would say Miranda. Mm. I don't like Miranda. I liked her. I liked her a lot more on this rereading than okay. I ever had. Because she basically makes the best of a really bad situation I mean, she doesn't want to go on this journey. Yeah, she, that's and true. She that's is true. like the scapegoat throughout the book. Everyone's always like, Miranda, she's so boring and she doesn't want to believe in things. But Yeah, but they don't like blame her for things. I guess maybe part of what I like is that I think a certain amount of skepticism is healthy and everyone else blindly follows what okay. is in their hearts. Like the professor. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but in for some Cassandra, ways, it made sense because she's a child. Like, so she was open to right. the And Miranda wonder. clearly has, so their mother died just right. earlier. Right. Clearly Miranda had to become the mom and mm-hmm. like the wife basically yeah. in that situation. So I felt like she got a really, That's a good point. really got the short end of That's the stick. Point. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I'm all for flights of fancy, but sometimes the motto in believing one sees just made me like a little bit nervous. And maybe it is because of the religious undertones there. And it's okay. because I'm thinking about this yeah. from, yeah, a slightly different perspective mm-hmm. as someone who is not at all religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, go ahead and talk a little more about Cassandra because we haven't really said much about her. And uh, if she's your badass lady. Tell us why. Um, I just thought that she was, I was impressed at her versatility and adaptability and the way that she like really threw herself headlong into this world. Um, The fairy queen gave her a magical stone uh, that was basically able to be her kind of... um, her guide. Yeah, it was her guide, and it, she always knew when something was wrong before it happened. Um, and uh, I really loved that she was just like, well, whatever, to her dress and started wearing the dwarves' clothes. 
Um, I love when she swims around with the sea serpent yes. and the mermaids. Yes. I love the sea uh-huh. serpent. His she's just design so, is super cool. Yeah. And she's just so adventurous and is the one who like makes friends with everyone. And mm-hmm. I just really, I don't know. She's a, a child and that's how she's written for sure. Um, but I just enjoyed that. I was, she stands up to the professor when he is being terrible also at a time when people are kind of half-heartedly being like, well, I mean, yes. I'm, I'm yeah. uncomfortable with exactly. what's happening, but you're but in no charge, I guess. Stands up and she uh, tells him that she hates him mm-hmm. and that he's not, I can't remember exactly what she said, but that he's not being fair mm-hmm. or yeah. true to the mission. Um, I was really bummed about the epilogue where they both, it, it, the epilogue just felt like it was saying, like, don't worry, they both found husbands, and now they're very happy. Yeah. And it was just kind of like... Although uh, Cassandra becomes an academic, and this is set sh- in Victorian England, so... No, for sure. Not a lot of options right. for women. I know, I just didn't love that. Yeah, I don't like it either. Um, it also, I know I'm complaining a lot <laughs> this episode, but... It also has the professor going back to Medusa, and I don't like their relationship. It's weird. Um, yeah, it's strange. Uh, Medusa is, I think, the other candidate for badass lady. Yes, um, definitely. She is a very interesting character that I wish we could you know, explore a little bit more mm-hmm. in this book yeah. because once she and the professor become romantically interested in one another, pretty much all of her moments are just looking at him or walking with him yeah. or showing that she cares for him mm-hmm. and she loses the individuality that I feel like she has at the beginning because it's so striking when she's in this garden filled with the very beings that she's killed over the years and she's horrified to even turn and greet mm-hmm. the people yeah. coming in who, you know, living beings that she hasn't seen in years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just just want more of Medusa's story, mm-hmm. more of her thing. But yeah. that's not what this book is for, and that's no. not what it's about. And there aren't any characters about. that really get backstories, um, other than like a little bit for the Minotaur and the Sphinx. I would say because the Sphinx is trying to find a new riddle. Mm, yeah, and everyone else is like, yeah, cool, whatever. The yeah. the Minotaur or the Manticore. Um, is just like being strong and brave. <laughs> just a big old grumpy cat, which also makes me feel weird about him and the Sphinx's romantic know, relationship. Because he's way more of a cat than he's she much is. more bestial. She's than half her. human. She has she's like a centaur. She yeah. has a, a human <laughs> torso and he like I was thinking like but they like each other. How I guess that they have um, the same genitals. Well yeah, they have like sexually compatible <laughs> genitals. This is the part where Grace is like, do I cut this out? Is this clean? <laughs> I really don't know sometimes. I mean, d- the other day I had a crisis and I was like, can we even say badass? Does that count as clean? Well, that's too late. We'll see. Yeah. If we ever get a sponsor, <laughs> we'll see you guys yeah, about what exactly. we have to do to clean but that up. Until then, just don't report us, please. <laughs> to the big podcast piece. To iTunes. I don't know how that works. Um, I've never tried to do that. But... Yeah, so Medusa, I think, should get an honorable mention. For sure, definitely. And just overall, I, I feel like she's kind of forced to be into the professor because he's her only viable romantic option, and everyone yeah. kind of gets paired off. Everyone who can be paired off gets is. Paired off. And then he goes back to her once he's old. But at that point, Medusa's still going to be a sexy, like, 
you know, she's a thirty-year-old right? yeah. in form, yeah. and he'll be an old man. But whatever. Also, she looks great in her smoked round she spectacles. Looks so good. She looks so, so cool. Good. Made me want to get some of those. So cool. Round glasses. Yeah, perfectly round black sunglasses with yeah. a wire rim. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She looks red. Love those. Um, so, would you like to give Cassandra a rating? Um, uh, she, on the scale, she is a, a bubbly little kid who just gets to do everything that they've ever wanted to do and also gets a magical artifact from the Fairy Queen. And I'll rate Miranda the confidence of knowing that out of this impossibly large group of Motley characters, she is the only one who can summon a unicorn. And she does. Mm-hmm. And it's great. And then she <laughs> fights really well in that final yeah, battle, she too. Does. She does a great job. Um, oh, one small thing always bothered me as a child. Why is Skotos obsessed with kidnapping Cassandra because of her golden hair when Miranda also has the same hair and is older? I think it's because he's a pedophile. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And a badass lady meter. <laughs> Moving on. Arcs. Oh, God. Oh, God. Why is this episode so dark? I know. I thought it was going to be like fun and games. Me and Grace are both in very... We're both very tired. The I think is, that that's what's affecting I us I think this here. is telling of the book and what yeah. it's like. Um, it did thrill me as a kid because of the darker and uh, I don't want to say perverse. There's nothing perverse about it exactly, no, but, but it it definitely does get dark, and the themes are darker. There's some pretty serious themes. You realize I mean, as a kid because as a kid you just get totally entranced by the mm-hmm. beauty of mm-hmm. it, yeah. and you don't and you think get lost so much in those two page spreads. Yeah, the fairy court. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I feel like we haven't really opened the book while we've been talking but uh yeah, I've i love the i love the labyrinth that looks like an mc escher painting or drawing i loved the um, um gremlins i thought that they were very pratchett-esque yes yeah oops i think i called them goblins earlier but i meant gremlins oh, okay even uh the the troll's lair looks like it's right out of skyrim for <laughs> sure yes i was like oh there's some good loot in there I love Medusa's garden. Really the, beautiful. Really there beautiful. aren't everything is very warmly colored in the book, except for the garden and then the ocean when we're looking at the mermaids. Um there's just yeah, lots of like maple and walnut and really pretty red gem tones. I took a I took a picture of one of my favorite little parts in the book, which is just a one of the dwarves and one of the fairies. Oh, yeah, Eli like, oh, hey, with one up? of the fairies like coming to say hey. Yeah. yeah, Eli and Sebastian were really cute dwarf characters. For sure. Um, and I love the painting of Sebastian when he, he gets accidentally frozen, turned to stone by Medusa, and they have him lashed to Yeah, they mast, just tie him to the mast. Um, because he was jumping <laughs> so when he was frozen, so he's stuck straight. in this yeah. pose and tied up against the mast while they try to figure out what to do with him. Yeah. And then I love the drawing yes. of the balancing act, mm-hmm. the yeah. dwarf who is occupied with, I'm holding it out as if we're reading in a classroom, <laughs> chocolate cake, 
a turtle, a, a candy fish. cane, a shoe. There's also some anachronistic stuff in here. Yeah. Um, there's like, like the shoe is a, a, a sneaker. sneaker. Yeah. yeah, a present day like Nike sneaker. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I'll maybe some of the glasses. Um, I mean, I think it's sometimes very clear. Which, Miranda and her dress. Yeah, I love that picture. Wait, picture. Sometimes it's quite clear which um, when an art piece had been completed previously and has yeah. been like put in the book, and then when one needed to be created afterwards for the book. Yeah, to yeah. fit in with the narrative. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. It's very beautiful. So now that we've talked about the dark stuff, the bright stuff, let's talk about the best stuff. Pretend food. The food. What are Pretend they eating? What food. are we thinking about? What are we imagining? We're starving. We, I am very hungry. So I got a bowl of corn in the microwave. <laughs> it might be the least appetizing thing that anyone's <laughs> oh ever God. tried to like. I like to eat very basic with my vegetables to make sure I'm getting my vitamins and... There's other, other ways to make other sure you're people getting your vitamins. in my life, like my sister and my boyfriend, will come over and just be like, "Are you just eating a bowl of peas, like a giant bowl of peas, right now?" And I'll be like, "I think it's tasty." And they'll be like, "You're weird." It's weird. Okay, it mm, is weird. Well, Un- undoubtedly, listeners, tell us what you think. <laughs> Let us know if you just eat a bowl of peas for dinner with nothing else, because that's what Madeline does. <laughs> But she spends like twenty dollars a week on groceries. So. True, it's true. So maybe it's worth it. Pretend food. So, kind of the opposite of our last episode, where they were made up words and we had to puzzle out what the words might mean. We actually have a visual representation mm-hmm. of what it is that they're eating. They eat a lot of soup. A lot of soup with pin feathers in it, right? Because the harpies become the ship the cooks, and they're actually even though we get images for everything that's going on there are still some moments where it's just unidentified mush that they're working on and the paintings just show steaming pots yeah. and piles of brown stuff which reminds me of food and comics the way it's oh often for sure shown yeah in, like, like it's not focused uh, newspaper, on, like, comics. newspaper comics yeah. what we're talking like in, about in here. garfield or mary worth like a mound of <laughs> like beigeness yeah the old Mary Worth food. If any of you out there are readers of Comics Curmudgeon by Josh Frohlinger, give us a shout out. We yeah. love Comics Curmudgeon. Joshreads.com. my life. Unexpected yeah. shout out. But if you want like a daily dose of something that will, if not make you laugh out loud, which it often does, yes. at the very least, make you smile, yeah. put a grin on your face, check it out. Grace is doing a little happy I'm dance right now. I'm yeah, it's really great. Um, and... Outside of that, uh, you know, there's really, there's not a lot of focus on food in this book. It's not really what James C. Christensen or the authors care about very much, which is fine. It's about adventuring. It's not about sitting down with your satchel and enjoying some hearty victuals. Uh, It's about all the moments in between. Um, they do. Cassandra's very worried about the Minotaur when she first meets him because she's like, you must be so hungry if you've been in here alone for years and years and years. And she gives him an apple. And I, I like that. That's a good gesture of friendship. There's also um, one of the dwarves brings to Medusa uh, sugar biscuits. Oh, yeah. And, and her tea. and her. Yeah. He brings her and trays. It, it really made me want some sugar biscuits and tea. Totally. Yeah. Because yeah. she's sequestered away. After so that she, she doesn't into stone. Yeah. Him hurt anyone else. And he brings her her little trays. And then sometimes she sits on the deck with her 
tea too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I appreciated that yeah. as well. So yeah, pretty pretty straightforward food. It's all food that we eat in our world. Um, although our food was not prepared by harpies, so I can't comment on the subtle flavor differences. I feel like they could probably microwave some corn. <laughs> Do they have a microwave on the basset? On the HMS basset? Oh, boil it. Whatever. Make oh, it food. Okay, make it edible. Oh. Edible, quote unquote. Getting a lot of, <laughs> a lot of raffing, riffing, R- ribbing, ribbing, <laughs> ribbit. What's words anyway? Well, we will post a lot of pictures um, because that's definitely. Yeah, part of the reason this episode is going to be a bit shorter is because it's about the art, not the writing, and it's hard for us to relay that in a podcast medium. Um, But I hope that you enjoyed this. I know this is slightly different from what we usually cover, and there's not. A whole lot of depth for us to really go into because it is a pretty straightforward fairly superficial story um, but that's not to say it isn't really enjoyable and this is definitely the book we've read that is most specifically for a young audience and that maybe has diminishing returns when you revisit it mm-hmm. as an adult yeah but that's not to say we didn't still enjoy it no yeah i was um, happy that i read it yeah and i hope that you do check our website to see some of the art because that's where the book's real value lies mm-hmm. yeah so until next time which will be a normal novel i promise um but we appreciate you kind of joining us for this departure with us and i'm i'm willing to bet that someone listening also read this when they were young or has at least seen james c christensen's art before Mm -hmm. um yeah until next time uh please let us know what you think or if there's a book that you'd like us to cover we can be found online at dragonbabiespodcast.com. You can email us at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at dragonbabiespod, Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast. And that's it. That's all the places that we are, except for on iTunes. For now. For now, that's right. Uh, soon we'll be ubiquitous. <laughs> we'll be able to get away from us. Because what the world is waiting for is a young adult babies. fantasy podcast. Uh, dragon babies. All right. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Bye. Goodbye. Here's my good look. Bye bye.